the Lord has directed us to a very important new series together called The Hundred Year War. Now, we played the trailer for that last week at the conclusion of the service, and it set the tone for the topic of this study. If you saw it, uh, you know that the theme of the next six weeks will be that of the Christian home, the family, marriage, children, uh, and how the body, the church body, can fill those gaps to assist families in that. So today's message is going to kick that off and hopefully set up the next five weeks. The question that I want to simply ask today is, will you enlist? Will you enlist in the Hundred Year War? That's the name of today's sermon, the most important reflection question you can ask today as we leave is that. That's all I need you to answer today uh, is that question. Are you in? Will you engage or will you step aside? Now, this is a a question for us to answer no matter the stage of life, whether you're in my stage of life where you have little kids at home, uh, whether you are parents of older uh, high schoolers or college students. It's for empty nesters. It's for senior adults with grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's for young married couples uh, with no children. It's for those who are dating. It's for those who are adults and single and have never married. It's for everyone in the body because all play a part in this battle. And the question is, will you enlist? Currently today, we are in the middle of a recruitment crisis in America on many fronts. Uh, Military recruitment is down. Many police departments cannot fill all of their needed positions. We may be one of them. As an example, uh, the the U.S. Army missed its 2022 recruitment goal by 15,000 soldiers. Officials say that could be a bigger shortfall this year. Uh, Many young people just don't want to do it anymore and don't see it as a viable option for their future. Uh, And and this is quite different than maybe the black and white photos that we sometimes see from the World War II era in the 40s. Maybe you have pictures in your mind, as I do, of men standing in recruitment lines outside offices down the street begging to be allowed to serve their country. 16 and 17-year-old teenagers lied about their age and concealed their health concerns not to get out of service, but to get into service. It was considered shameful to be at home while others went and fought the Nazis. So perhaps you remember, even if you're a Marvel fan and you remember Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, Steve Rogers, tiny Steve Rogers, uh, tries desperately to get in to service and they won't let him in. And so there you have the movie. But That is based on truth. That happened. There was once a great desire like that to enlist. So the question I have is, what changed? Well, that's a loaded question, but a few principles that are true. First, people do not enlist in something when they don't believe in the cause enough to suffer for it. That's number one. Secondly, people don't enlist in something when they don't personally care whether we win or lose. That's number two. Thirdly, people don't enlist if they don't have anything to fight for that they love. What is the war in this context of this series, the 100-year war? It's that Christians look at this world and we look at our own nation and we say we are on the wrong track and the issues run deeper than who's in the Oval Office in a given year. And at the same time, we are losing the culture from without, 
we look to our own families and see often that we many times have not held firm on the things we can control. We have divorce and broken families. We have adopted some of the world's mindset on sexuality and gender. We have children who have wandered away from the faith of their fathers. The Christian home is no longer a fortress of strength. But the hundred-year war is about saying this, no matter what happened in the past, no longer. Year one starts today. We must reclaim our homes in the name of Jesus Christ. And over the next 100 years, the tides of the world and the culture and sin may ebb and flow, but God's people must dig in and remain. And we will do so by investing and prioritizing in our single greatest asset, our children, our people, our families. Today's message will be an introduction to the kind of mindset we will have to enlist in this war. And then in the next five weeks, it will be detailed unpacking of what that looks like practically. Christ may return tomorrow. I don't want... Christ may return tomorrow. If he doesn't, I don't want to consign my grandchildren over to a future of darkness because I didn't try. So today... We introduce this concept by discussing how long-term faithfulness is going to be one of the core values of the 100-year war. So before we look at God's word, pray with me. Lord, we ask for divine help in this moment to see spiritual truths beyond our nose today, that God, you would allow us to look long-term and see with your eyes. God, we know we are not omniscient or omnipresent, but God, through your spirit, you can give us a mind to see beyond ourselves, to care about life beyond our generation. So we ask for that to seep into us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message will be more topical than you're used to hearing from me. So if you're a guest, we, we went 20-something weeks in the book of Acts. We did the book of Jonah. Um, This is topical, so this is a little out of my norm. Uh, I'm going to be in multiple scripture passages today. The first place I want to take you is Psalm 145. So I'd encourage you to turn there. You might want to warm your thumbs up today if you want to turn with me every time I turn, uh, just to keep me honest, you know? It's good for me. Uh, We live in an instant gratification culture. What people once considered a short time, uh, we now consider an eternity. We've moved from reading books over the course of a few days to watching two-hour movies to watching 30-minute TV shows to watching five-minute YouTube videos to watching 10-second TikTok videos. Instead of watching a two-hour movie with a storyline and a plot that develops and rises and falls, your average person under 40 now spends two hours watching 100 short videos. The concept of time, attention span, commitment to a task has drastically shortened in the last two decades. And this is why it can be difficult to pitch to you a commitment to something that lasts 100 years. But I think we need to ask ourselves, how does the Bible require us to think about time, about longevity, about heritage, about legacy and generations? 
Now, when I say the word generations, some of you may be thinking of genealogies. Many times in the Bible it says, now the generations of so-and-so, and then you get Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And you may have an entire chapter, and you may skip those in your Bible reading. Are you guilty? You are, aren't you? That's all right. <laughs> be honest. And certainly, uh, you can say one thing about the Bible in those parts. There at least seems to be a model for generational thinking. There was a concern for where people came from in those days. They knew their great-great-grandparents' names. Do we? They knew their family tribe. We've lost some of that. We should not have to go to Ancestry.com and ask the Mormons to tell us who our great-grandfather was. We shouldn't have to spit in a test tube and send it to 23andMe to figure out who we are. There should be a sense of rootedness in our family history that passes down through generations. I hope in 100 years, my great-grandchildren know that their great-grandfather was a pastor named Jared, and he walked with the Lord and set the trajectory for their family tree. And he did that because his father, Darren, did it before him. And he did that because his father, Jerry, did it before him. And I want them to feel a sense of weight to the fact that our family heritage is to carry the torch of Christ, to walk away from a family heritage like that would to be break a line of seven generations of crest men who walked with the Lord. We have to remove ourselves from popular culture narcissism that says, we are the greatest thing right now since sliced bread. We live for ourselves. Pursue your own happiness. Life is short, so you only live once. I know kids don't say YOLO anymore. I was told not to say that. Uh, and blow it all now because you can't take it with you. That's the mindset. That is not a biblical mindset of time, stewardship, and investments. Read Psalm 145 with me. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Listen to this. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall declare and praise God to another generation. Like a baton being passed in the Olympics on a track, one runner will pass the baton to another, so shall one generation carry the truth of God to the next. That is the goal of the 100-year war. That's how a nation is turned. That's how the church remains. That's how God is glorified in the praises of his people generation after generation. And that's the heart of this series. So as we prepare our minds for that generational thinking, there are some initial reflections that I want you to consider. So your outline today are things to consider before you enlist, okay? So number one, reflect upon 21-23. Reflect upon 21-23. Let me ask you a question. What will the world be like in 100 years? In 2123, it is almost guaranteed that everyone in this room will have passed away by then. It's likely that even our children 
will have passed away by 2123. Those of us who are my age or younger, it is possible and, uh, that you will have grandchildren living in 2123. And I must say, I picked that number, 100. You're like, why did he pick 100? 100 years, no matter how old you are, forces you to think one generation beyond your control. It's one further than you can manhandle yourself. Now, back to the question. What will the world be like in 100 years? How you answer that question actually reveals a lot about your outlook on the future. And I would like to put to death something here at Kirby Woods and hopefully others beyond as this message is listened to by others. The concept that because things are getting worse in our world and because we believe in a future return of Christ, that the most Christian thing to do is batten down the hatches and shake our fist at the darkness as it closes in upon us. Listen, liberals don't believe Jesus is coming back at all, but conservatives, we have our own problem, and it has invaded the church. And it is that because we know how this story ends and we know we are living in the last days always, Christ is probably coming back in a couple of years, so let's just hang on and try not to change this world for Christ because it's got to get worse before he returns anyway, so just hang on. That is everywhere. Let me share another scripture passage with you. Matthew 24, 36. It says this. Concerning the day and hour, that is the time of Christ's return, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the only the Father know. For as there were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So listen, we don't know when he's coming back. And just as it was wrong for Harold Camping to set multiple dates and for William Miller to set a date and everyone to lose their mind over Y2K and everyone to think because the Mayans had to stop their calendar in 2012 that that's when the world was going to end, we could also be wrong that it's just a few years out. Listen. It is equally as possible that Christ returns tomorrow as it is 100 years, as it is 500 years. Jesus told a parable just after this in Matthew 24, 45 about the faithful servants versus the wicked servants when the master left. The faithful servants were the ones who kept on business as usual while the master was gone. They did not let the master's absence tempt them from stopping their work. They kept the schedule, they did the chores, even when they had no idea when the master was coming home, precisely because he could come back at any moment and they wanted to be found busy doing work. Church, listen, the world may be growing dark, but we must be faithful servants that keep our hand to the plow until the day Jesus is standing in the clouds and you hear the trumpet. Until that day, your hand has to be on that plow. Don't you think Martin Luther could have thought Christ was going to come in his day? How dark was it then? People didn't even have Bibles to read in languages they understood. And as broken as the, the church scene was, he plowed forward, he broke ground, he plodded onward, and the Protestant Reformation changed Western civilization for 500 more years of which you are breathing that air. We have to stop assuming all is lost. 
That is all our youth and college students have heard their whole lives. Hysterical people screaming about how bad things are and how we've ruined the climate and the world is going to end and polar ice caps are going to melt and flood the coastlines and we are literally on the edge of a climate crisis unless we raise your taxes and that's going to solve it. That's all they hear. That's all they hear their whole life. They don't know any different. 15 years, that's been the going statement. No wonder they're all depressed. No wonder they think they're inheriting a flaming pile of ash as their birthright. But listen, aren't we, church, supposed to be the people of hope? Aren't we supposed to be the gospel people, the good news people, the faith people, the nothing is impossible with God people, the resurrection power people? Didn't we just study together the book of Jonah that says God can turn Nineveh in one day? And if Nineveh was turned in a day and they never had the gospel, why would we believe that he can't turn our nation to himself when we already have a significant gospel light already? If we are willing to humble ourselves and pray, he will heal us and forgive us. And we need to put our hand to the plow as we pray. If God can do it for Nineveh in a day, I believe he can do it for us in 100 years if we are faithful servants. So the first thing I'm asking you to consider as you enlist the 100-year war is that when you think of 2123, that you see it not for the darkness that it looks like today, but through the lens of what God could do with a few faithful servants. That's number one. Second, we must restore the mindset that children are a blessing. Restore the blessing of our children. The second way we will mentally prepare to enlist in the Hundred Year War is that we must reorient our minds to a biblical perspective on having children, seeing them as blessings from the Lord rather than burdens upon our comfort. Moms, you know, raising children is one of the most difficult parts of life, true or false true. It takes everything. It puts an enormous stress upon your body. It forces you to constantly care for someone else. It puts your comforts in second, maybe third place. It introduces financial strain. We could go on and on about the challenges, which are real. However, the biblical perspective on children is that for all the challenges, the blessing and joy outweighs them by a mile. I'm going to read a classic text from Psalm 127, 3. You're welcome to turn there, Psalm 127, 3 through 5. In light of the going way that the world presents having children, which is a drain on your life, a burden to society, overpopulation fear-mongering that's not even true, one more mouth to feed, one more carbon footprint. That's the way that our world presents having children. That kind of thinking is completely foreign to the Bible, just so you know. 127.3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The biblical command is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, take dominion, Subdue it. And how does this take place? Children and families. 
Look at the words in Psalm 127 that describe children. See if this is how the world talks about children. Psalm 127 says they are heritage, reward, and arrows. Heritage, reward, and arrows. We might say a legacy, a prize, and spiritual ammo. That's a far cry from being a burden. Listen to this truth. For the average married Christian, the greatest spiritual contribution you will make to this world is the kind of children and grandchildren you raise. That will most likely outlive anything you do, anything you build, any, any money you save, any invention you create, anything you accomplish, your family will outlive it. We don't care about carbon footprint. We care about Christian footprint. The future belongs to the people of the future. And if there are more Christians in the future, the future will be more Christian. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Are you ready for a wild statistical reality? I got some great Mother's Day stats for you. A Pew Research study looked at a period of birth rates, death rates, and religious affiliation over a five-year window in the last 10 years. They found over a five-year period, there were 116 million Christians gross gain added to the global population by birth rate meaning 116 more Christians were born than died in a five-year window. During that same five-year window, there was a 9 million person gross loss to Christians by deconversion who switched to another religion or became unaffiliated. So let's get really real here. No one's ever told you what I'm about to tell you. If they have, I apologize for taking the credit. This is a Pew Research study. By evangelism warfare, we suffered a 9 million Christian loss over five years. By birth rate warfare, we gained 116 million Christians. Now, I am not communicating that we simply get into birth battles to build the kingdom of God and that we need to ditch our evangelism and missions. Not at all. Not at all. But... We need to consider in the long-term approach the number one way a person becomes a Christian by frequency is being born to Christian parents. And the same way we think strategically about missions and evangelism, we ought to think strategically about our families and our children. Parents, when you have children... You are agents with God in the creation of a soul that will last for eternity. God, through a man and a woman, creates a life and a soul that exists forever. That is a sobering reality, and it gives a weight to what we do, especially in those formative years. Do not believe the world's mindset about children. It may be the hardest thing you do. But it's also one of the most fulfilling things that you can do. And in terms of the kingdom, it is the most effective thing you will do. And before we move on from this point, I just want to say on, on Mother's Day, one of the hallmarks of this series that we're in, that I'm going to say over and over again, is faithfulness in the mundane. Faithfulness in the mundane. Investing in moments when you don't see the results immediately chunking hours and hours behind the scenes when the payoff is years down the road. That's motherhood. 
in a nutshell, isn't it? I think a great mom is actually a picture of what we're talking about in this series. Moms, you plow and plod ahead day after day after day, diaper after diaper, meal after meal, laundry load after laundry load, practice after practice, homework after homework, ride after ride, Bible lesson after Bible lesson. You plug away in service to your family in faithfulness to mundane tasks because it is an investment in something you don't see in that moment. You are building something. You are planting something. You are developing a young man or woman into who they will become, and that is a microcosm of what God has called us to do with the Great Commission, with the kingdom of God, to plod and be faithful over long periods of time when the results are not apparent in front of our face. So be ready to enlist in the 100-year war. We have to reflect on 2123. We have to restore the view that children are blessings from God And thirdly, we must, number three, remember, we are always one generation away. I'll explain that to you, but for right now, we are always one away. At any moment in time, we are one generation away from either turning back to the Lord or turning away from the Lord. So you may notice on your outline there are two blanks under point three. That is uh, to say, Two ways we're going to look at this, for worse and for better. Those are the two lines, for worse or for better. I want to see a biblical caution and encouragement that the stakes are high, but this is a winnable war. First, I want to get the bad news out of the way. That's kind of how the gospel is, right? You do the bad news first. Okay, you're a sinner. Very good. Next. Now, Judges 2, 8 through 10. If you want to turn there, that's going to be my next passage. Judges 2, 8 through 10. What I want to show you is the reality that at any given moment, we are one generation from losing the Christian heritage that has been built. Now, the example that I'm going to show you is Moses led Israel through the promised land to the edge of the promised land. Moses didn't take them in. Who took them in? Joshua. Okay. Joshua led them in. They gained control through warfare, through conquest, and they took the land. God's people had the land. Joshua and his generation served the Lord. This, however, did not last. Judges 2, 8 through 10 says this, And Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. So, the generation who crossed over the Jordan with Joshua remained faithful to the Lord. Everyone who fought remained faithful. Everyone who was born while Joshua was alive remained faithful. However, for all their accolades in war and conquest, taking the land, establishing Israel, they failed in one major area. They lost their kids. They may have been a great generation because of their accomplishments, but they had a massive blind spot in their greatness that they did not pass along their faith. 
And what was the result of that? Well, the book of Judges is 300 years of darkness, of 300 years of everybody did what was right in his own eyes. How did that happen? How did the great generation of Joshua succeed in taking the land but not pass it along? Well, I can tell you if you read Judges 1 and 2, which I will summarize for you now, it is very clearly spelled out. It's not hard to find. First, Judges 1.27 tells us that they drove out most of the Canaanites. Most of the Canaanites, not all the Canaanites. Whereas God told them in this war, take no prisoners, leave no survivors, they actually did take some prisoners and left a few survivors. So listen to this good. This is good. Partial obedience to God may not derail you in your lifetime, but your kids notice it. King David was partially disobedient to the Lord. He had eight wives. He wasn't supposed to have eight wives, but he did. It did not derail King David from following the Lord. He served the Lord. He never bowed to an idol his whole life. As soon as Solomon took excess to extraordinary heights of 1,000 wives and concubines, we know Solomon did fall away at the end of his life and go after foreign gods. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, oversaw the split of the kingdom his fathers had built. He introduced more idolatry, cult prostitution into Judah, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was a quick drop-off from David to Rehoboam. That's how it happened, partial disobedience. Now back to Judges. We see the second reason that they lost their kids was number two in Judges 2, 1 through 5, that the original generation did not remove all the altars to Baal and all the Asherim poles they were told to remove. Moses said, cut every one of them down. I want it to look like a golf course out there. And they didn't. They left some of them. Now, they did not worship those things, but they left them, and their kids got a hold of them. And the third reason I see that they lost the next generation was that disciples were not made and truth was not passed. Case in point. Moses had a Joshua. Samuel had a David. Elijah had who? An Elisha. Paul had a Timothy. Joshua had a... That's right. You may be awesome at what you do. Joshua was an incredible war hero, a godly man. But if you do not actively, intentionally pass along to your sons, to your daughters, or to some young person in this church, it will die with you. That's what happened to Joshua's generation. It happens often. A great generation with great accolades produces a weak generation because they did not pass along lessons of what they learned. You're always one away for the worse if you do not take seriously the command of the Lord to train up the next generation. You're always, however, and I want to end on a positive note, always also one away for the better. Look with me now, our, our last text today, Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. Now you're going to recognize verses 1 and 2 of these because Jesus quotes it as being a part of his earthly ministry. If you remember the story where Jesus reads the Isaiah scroll, rolls it up, hands it back, says everybody have a seat fulfilled, this is that text, 
okay? But often people don't read past the part where Jesus quoted from. So that's what I want to do. We're going to get a running start, uh, and I'm going to make the case to you today that what we read is relevant to any generation that the Spirit is on, full of the Spirit, and participates in the ministry of Christ. So read with me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and comfort to all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Listen, these blessings are available to any who walk in the Spirit and make the ministry of Christ their life. Verse 3 says, people were mourning in Zion. They had ashes and tears and a faint spirit. They lived among ancient ruins. Things were broken down and busted everywhere you turn. It was potholes and dirty streets, and, and it looked a lot. It was a rough place. All their good times were in the past. The glory had departed. Most news they heard was bad news. And it sounds a lot like today. Things feel worse today than the previous generation. Many young people do not believe for the first time that their life will be as good as their parents. Optimism is at an all-time low. But listen, we need to hear this. The same way that we are one generation away from turning from the Lord, we are also one generation away from revival. We must walk with the Spirit, live out the Great Commission, and proclaim Christ to all. We must dig in and labor for the kingdom. Look at those words in Isaiah 61. God says, you who were once mourning will be called, I love this phrase, oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord for his own glory. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 7, you will be rooted and builded up in Christ. Psalm 1 says we are to be like trees planted by streams of water. Jesus says build your house on the solid rock, not the quicksand. Our text in Isaiah 61 says through the Spirit and through Christ, you will be an oak of righteousness planted by God for his glory. And what will people like that do? What do those people do? Verse 4 says they build up ancient ruins. They raise up devastated places. They repair ruined cities. The Lord will plant us, and we will build up, raise up, and repair. Is our world in rough shape right now? Yes. But look, church, the Lord has planted us for such a time as this. In the 100-year war we are in, it will take time. A mighty oak tree does not grow in a day. A devastated, ruined city is not rebuilt in a day. But I believe that this world and all its failed experiments are going to run their course. It will spend folly to the fullest. 
Its foe wisdom will be known by her children, and after the world has been shaken and all the snow is settled from the bottom of the snow globe, it's all settled down, the oaks of righteousness, the people of God, will be left standing because the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. And in the ashes of the shaken, desolate kingdom built by the world, we will be there to build up, raise up, and repair. All it takes is for one generation to turn the tide, to seek the Lord in spirit and in truth. So today, consider the hundred-year war set before us to seek to live out faithfulness to God over long periods of time, to live in light of 100 years in the future rather than instant gratification, to invest in our children as blessings, as arrows in the hands of a warrior, to live generationally, to pass along the truth of God intentionally. The question for you today is, will you enlist in that? If you'd prefer to sit on the sidelines and, and curse the darkness, I cannot stop you. If you'd prefer to wring your hands as things get worse and to tell the next generation of kids, sorry, that's just how it has to be. I can't stop you from that. But if you want to enlist in the 100-year war, welcome to the fight. We need to pray that the Lord God gives us strength. This is a long battle. I believe that the scripture we memorized two months ago is very relevant today. Isaiah 61.11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. We ask you to do it, Lord. May our great-grandchildren see that fulfilled, and may we be faithful for the next 100 years. Let's pray together.